It is a beautiful day to be alive, and I am so glad we have this time together. I'm Sana Leiborn, she, her. I'm a professor, scholar, connector, and avid reader. I've always loved learning about what's happening in our social world and sharing that knowledge, especially over a good cup of coffee. And so here we are. Each week on Let's Grab Coffee, I catch up with experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. Go ahead and grab that cup of coffee and get ready for an engaging and insightful conversation. So far in 2023, lawmakers in 37 U.S. states have introduced at least 142 bills to restrict gender-affirming health care for trans and gender-expansive people, nearly three times as many as last year. Here in Tennessee, 22 anti-trans bills have been filed this year, ranging from prohibiting gender-affirming care, limiting students' participation in sports, barring diversity, equity, and inclusion training in public institutions of higher education and among state contractors, and asserting that teachers and other public school employees are not required to use a student's pronouns if they are not consistent with a student's assigned sex at birth. These bills and similar others are often introduced under the guise of protecting minors, but effectively intensify moral panic, perpetuating transphobia, and the conditions that make our society less safe for all of us. If safety is our goal and ensuring our children thrive, then it's time we examine our own misunderstandings about gender, identity, and what it means to be trans. To help us do just that, today I'm joined by Skylar Baylor. Skylar Baylor, he, him, is the first transgender athlete to compete in any sport on an NCAA Division I men's team. By 15, he was one of the nation's top 20 15-year-old breaststrokers. By 17, he set a national age group record. In college, Skylar swam for Harvard University on Harvard's winningest team in 50 years. Skylar's difficult choice to transition while potentially giving up the prospect of being an NCAA champion was historic. His story has appeared everywhere from 60 Minutes to the Washington Post. Skylar's tireless advocacy has earned him numerous honors, including LGBTQ Nations, Instagram Advocate for 2020, a GLAAD Media Award nomination, the Out Magazine's 2017 Out 100 list, and the prestigious Harvard Athletics Director's Award, which is not granted annually, but only when an athlete demonstrates outstanding contribution to athletics through education. He is only the seventh recipient of the award. In 2021, Skylar also released his first middle grade novel, Obi is Man Enough. And in 2022, Skylar created LaneChanger.com, making gender literacy education accessible to every team, school, and company. Skylar is the author of He, She, They, How We Talk About Gender and Why It Matters. He joins us today. Hi, Skylar. So good to have you here. Hi, Suna. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, I absolutely had to have you on when I saw this book that you have written, because I think it's such an important conversation for all of us to have. And I didn't know what to expect Um, when reading your book. I was like, okay, I know I'm going to learn, obviously, about how we talk about gender and why (laughs) it matters. But I was so blown away by the way you really invited us into a conversation. And it feels like a conversation. And I thought that was so important because for a lot of folks, maybe this is the first time that they are even kind of thinking through some of these different topics. And it can seem scary. They don't want to get it wrong. They don't want to offend anybody. They're maybe even afraid at their own ignorance, right? And so I love how conversational and how personal 
um, this book is. And also I found myself um, being able to, you know, read a chapter and kind of put it down or then come back to it. And a lot of the chapters also, I could envision someone maybe even skipping around from different chapters Mm -hmm. because you've written it in such a way where it's easy to follow along and understand and digest the topics uh, within this phenomenal book. So thank you so much. Oh, well, thank you so much for the kind words. It's something that um, I'm obviously very passionate about. And uh, I poured a lot of myself into the book as well, trying to really, like you said, strike that conversational tone, because um, I think a lot of people feel talked at about gender. And, um, and, you know, a lot of people are doing talking at online, right? There's a lot Mm -hmm. of debate about trans people, but there's not a lot of us actually conversing effectively, compassionately, um, and with information, right? Educatedly, if you will, (laughs) on these (laughs) topics. And and so that's why I wrote the book. I really wanted to bring everybody into the conversation in a way that still centers humanity and science. And that's what I've hoped to deliver. And you absolutely did it. And I love you brought in both the humanity part and the science because I love learn like I learned so much. You include okay. science, you include history, you include so much in the book. So people have a much, I think, a very expansive understanding and can walk away from the book feeling like, okay, I feel empowered, educated, and not just for folks who maybe are like, I, you know, I'm still kind of grappling with my own gender identity, but also Mm -hmm. I'm thinking for trans folks who read the book, I could imagine this is also very affirming as well. So again, just so much praise and so much love for, for this book that you've written. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. And um, yeah, the balance striking between trying to write it for allies, for people who are not trans, and then also writing it to make sure that trans folks saw themselves in the book as well was really important to me because I, I want this book to be for for anybody who picks it up. Um, and so I think I, I, I try my best to find a way to pull everybody in that sense in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you absolutely did that. Um, what I also appreciated about the book was that you gave us a lot of definitions along the way so that we can make sure we're using the right language and understand what the meanings or agreed upon definitions as of right now, what they are, as well as a glossary, because I'm all about being able to like find the information <laughs> I need and even refresh. Um, so I sure. wanted to start our conversation um, around pronouns, because that's something, so I'm an educator, um, and I hear a lot of other educators talk about using pronouns, or even some people saying they won't use pronouns. I mentioned Mm -hmm. in the intro that Tennessee passed a bill saying that public school teachers and employees do not have to use um, the appropriate pronouns. And so I want to start there, because I think that's something that a lot of people might encounter uh, and might even be new for them of, okay, why am I introducing myself and using my pronouns? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I've, I'll, I'll answer with a a thought that came to my head. So I read a comment several years ago and it's one that it's always comes back to me whenever people talk about pronouns, which is there was this tweet or comment or something that was like, I'm not going to date any person who has pronouns. Like I won't date a girl with pronouns. (laughs) And, and what I first want to remind everybody is that actually everybody has pronouns, right? Even cis people, people who are not trans, y'all have pronouns too. (laughs) And I think that people forget that they think that gender is just a trans experience. And for everybody else, it's just, you know, some sort of default where there isn't a gender experience, but that's not true. Everybody has a gender experience and everybody has pronouns that they do or don't like. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just our relationship with our awareness of that. So first thing is to remind people who are not trans, you have pronouns too. 
And you probably don't like when people don't use them correctly, right? I don't mm -hmm. know many cis people. So let's say like a cisgender man, a man who's not trans, they don't, they don't really like to be called women or miss or lady. In fact, doing so is a pretty common way to offend a man, right? Mm -hmm. um, and similar with a woman, they don't like to be called men or mister or, um, or you know, other gendered words that are male. So we all don't like misgendering for the most part. Are there exceptions? Sure. Um, but we need to remind that. Our, remind ourselves of that first, which is that we we don't like to be misgendered and therefore trans people don't like to be misgendered either. I always encourage people to introduce themselves with their pronouns. You did that as well. You did my bio, you introduced me with my pronouns. Um, and it really is a is a is a note that says, hey, actually, we can't assume everybody's pronouns simply by the way that we look, right? Mm -hmm. And people have a, an understanding, or I'm going to say a misunderstanding, that everybody's gender is obvious, quote unquote, by the way that they look, right? The hair length, the whether or not they're wearing makeup, what their clothing looks like, the colors they're wearing, how their voice sounds, right? And we immediately are taking in all these signals and then immediately gendering the person. And mm -hmm. we assume that whatever we spit out is correct. And if we can't figure it out, then that's the first thing we notice, right? Yeah. Um, and what I want people to understand is the way we gender people is actually societally imposed. Because if we go back many years, people actually wore different clothing, right? At one mm -hmm. point, pink was considered a masculine color and blue was considered a dainty, delicate girl's color. Um, at one point, men wore powdered wigs, makeup, <laughs> heels, and skirts. And you're wondering mm -hmm. when, where? The 1700s. Look up any picture of any white man in the 1700s, right? So I think we need to understand that gender expression, how we present our genders, isn't this objective biological entity. It's actually something that we've made up and that's okay. That's great. Dress however the heck you want, but don't assume that everybody's dressing equals their gender pronouns, right? And mm -hmm. so make space to, to share yours and they can share theirs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I love that reminder that the societal norms, they change. Over yeah. time, you talked about color, A different lot. colors. Yeah, they, <laughs> you talked about colors, styles of clothing. Um, these aren't inherently gendered. We give it meaning. We assign it to be, quote unquote, boy or girl. And we also assign to society that they're only boys and girls, right? Whereas right. that's also not a, a, T, a capital T truth, right? right. right. Uh, and so I love how in the book, you really give us the opportunity to question and interrogate some of the beliefs that we just take as quote unquote fact that right. aren't facts at all. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I liked, and this is where I really try to engage a lot of compassion. It's not only for other people, by the way, also for myself, because I also grew up in this world that taught me that binary, right? Of mm -hmm. gender is only two things, male or female. Um, and I, I think that we we need to be gentle with ourselves. We also need to be kind to other people, but we can be gentle with ourselves as we undo what we think we know about the world. And a lot of people are not willing to admit, actually, I was wrong, right? Actually, what I learned isn't correct. But we, when we don't do that, when we don't update what we we know we are sitting on like old information, right? A lot of people come to me and be like, but it's biological sex. It's biology. I learned it in basic, you know, middle school biology. I'll be like, <laughs> that's exactly the problem. You learned that in middle school, right? We need to update. We're not in middle school anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And people are afraid to do that because it breaks their conception of reality. It shifts what they understand about the world to say, wait, there's more than just male and female, right? Or maybe there's more than just cisgender people, right? So I think mm -hmm. it's important important for us to to sort of exercise that gentleness with ourselves as we break open this concept of the gender binary. And part of the way I like to do 
that is actually looking at history, right? So you mentioned that I bring history into the book. And it's important to recognize that the way we see gender now has not been consistent over time. People are like, oh, it's, you know, from the start of time, this has always been true. No, there's actually many societies in which gender wasn't the hierarchy that the society was based upon. There were some languages where woman wasn't even a word because people were just one group of people and the distinguishing factors was actually age, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in a lots of indigenous societies, a third gender or a quote, non-binary gender were celebrated sometimes even as if they were deities, right? Um, so there is lots of different history that's much more welcoming towards trans people, gender diverse people than we see now. And so I like to remind people transness and trans people are not new, but transphobia that actually is new, right? Especially mm-hmm. in the in the sort of intensity that we're seeing it now. Yeah. I mean, I think that was so important. And I love that you brought up being gentle with ourselves because, you know, as you mentioned, we're raised in a society here in the U.S. where gender binary is what we're taught and um, probably what we experience when we go to school, being segregated into boys and girls and, you know, things like that. And right. so it can be a big ask for people to get comfortable with like, oh, what I was raised to believe might not actually be true. And then what does that mean, you know, moving forward? Um, We are often very resistant to change. And so this could be uh, difficult for some folks. So being able to be gentle with ourselves, I think, is a, a really great reminder Um, We've been using a few words that maybe for some folks is new to them. So we talked about cisgender and even talked about trans. And I'm wondering if you could just give us some intro definitions to make sure that we're all on the same page. Yeah, a little live glossary. Yeah. Um, so so trans and cis uh, are, are shortened, shortened words of transgender and cisgender. Um, transgender is an adjective that defined a person who uh, does not identify with the gender they were assigned at birth. Um, when we're born, we get assigned a gender. I say assigned with intention. Some people will be like, what do you mean assigned? You were just born as whatever. Um, I do mean assigned because when a baby is born, the body is examined essentially, like the baby's anatomy is looked at and they say, hmm, And they look at the genitals and it's really that simple. If the genital is a certain length, they smack an M on the birth certificate. And if it's shorter than a certain length, they smack an F on it. And they really assign you your gender by the, by the appearance of your genitals. Um, and I think when we don't think about it that way, we are sort of disillusioning ourselves to what's happening when we gender a baby. Um, that's that's all that's happening. We don't know what the baby feels. We don't actually know a whole lot about the baby's karyotype, their chromosomes. People will always be like, but chromosomes. Most people have no idea what their chromosomes are. We could guess, but mm-hmm. most people have not been karyotyped, right? We're not looking at internal genitalia. We're not looking at testosterone or other hormone levels. We're just looking at the baby's genitals at birth. And so we assign gender based on that appearance most of the time. If you do identify, right, if your gender is whatever you were assigned at birth, that makes you cisgender. So those are those two words. If you're not transgender, you're cisgender. And if you're not cisgender, then you're transgender. So they're sort of polar opposites in that sense. Um, So that's a hopefully easy way to remember it. Um, And there's lots more we could share about the words, but I'll, I'll stop there because you asked for the sort of quick beginner definitions. Yes. Thank you so much for that. Because as you talk about in the book, you know, having language to even talk about uh, groups of folks or the experiences we're having helps us to have more specificity around even the conversation that we want to engage in. So I think that that was really important. I know a question that you talk about in the book um, and that we often hear in kind of the the social discourse is how do trans people know they're trans, right? Is this just a phase? And I love that in the book you say, well, how do you know that you're cisgender, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, have you sat and with yourself and thought about, 
am I actually cisgender? And how would I know? Right. And I love giving that moment for folks to pause and investigate our own gender. And remember, as you said earlier, that all of us have a gender, all of us have pronouns, and we're all having a gender experience. And that's true for all of us. It's just that some of us haven't been forced and confronted with or demanded to explain ourselves in a way that other people will accept. Right. Yeah. No, I I think that, you know, like I said, at the top of this interview, I want this book to be for everybody because I I think it is right. I think that we all have this, this gendered experience. We've also all been limited by our gender experience, regardless of whether or not we're trans, right? Women have felt not woman enough or too masculine. Men have felt too, too uh, feminine or, or not masculine enough or what have you cisgender people, right? Have felt these things. So we've all been limited by gender. And when we consider that we can, we can really walk into the importance of asking ourselves about our own genders, right? And -hmm. trans people, we have to declare how we understand our genders in order to exist in this world right now. And we have to also know our genders enough to be able to say, this is who I am and go against the number one assignment we were given, which is to be a different gender, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that takes a lot of assertiveness. It takes a lot of self-grounding. It takes a lot of risk, right? Or assumes a lot of risk. And cisgender people, again, people who are not trans don't do that, at least with regards to gender, right? Mm-hmm. So what I ask people who are cisgender with curiosity, not with like aggression, but the same question, right? How do you know who you are? And a lot of people can't answer the question. A lot of people don't have a dissertation to give me. They haven't thought deeply about it. They don't have peer-reviewed research articles to hand me. They just, their answer is usually, well, I just no. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like, I, I really want people to sink into that knowing because that's great. I'm glad that you just know. I don't actually need more from you than that, but you should then not need more from me than that, right? I'm also as a trans person allowed to just know who I am and not have to give you a dissertation about why. Mm-hmm. That was so powerful to me is thinking about the things that we just know about who we are and we know about ourselves and being able to cultivate that knowing, right? And to be able to hold that knowing. And I could imagine, particularly for trans folks, being able to hold and keep that knowing within um, as the society that we live in is trying to say something is wrong with that or no, you you don't know or, or, or that's not valid. Um, so I think there's something really powerful in knowing who you are and knowing that that's enough, right? Like maybe I don't yeah. have the language or I can't explain it to you. Um, or before I've encountered this book, I couldn't, you know, break down the history and, you know, everything that's happened, but I just know who I am and that being enough. And I thought that was so powerful. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this um, accusation or the way folks talk about trans people as, quote unquote, changing genders. And Mm -hmm. could you tell us a little bit about why that's incorrect? Yeah. Well, so I want to say, and I talk about this, like you said, in the book as well, um, that there's all different kinds of of trans people. And I think it's important to recognize that whatever I say about any of this is what I think is generally um, accepted by the trans community. But there's always people who don't, um, you know, agree exactly with me, of course, and I can't possibly speak for the entire trans community. Um, So I'll I'll answer this question, but I just really want to reinforce that because I think Mm -hmm. it's important to recognize that if some trans person does tell you, you know, I've changed 
changed genders, great. Okay, then say cool, right? Let people tell you who they are. Um, mm -hmm. I think generally speaking, what I've understood is that most people who are trans don't feel that they've, you know, up and changed their gender one day, but rather learn to affirm the gender that's always been there, right? Mm -hmm. A gender perhaps that they have been suppressing or having to mask or having to sort of stuff away. Um, and I'll, I'll answer it sort of in a really personal standpoint. I don't think that when I came out as a trans person, I like suddenly became a man, right? And wake up one day and was like, oh, here I am, a man, right? <laughs> um, and it wasn't testosterone that made me a man. It wasn't top surgery. I have always been myself and I've always felt this way about myself, always felt this way about my gender, but I didn't always have the language or the resources or the courage or the community to be able to declare that to the world. And that was the shift, right? The shift was finding the courage, finding the language, finding the community to say, hey, actually, this is who I am. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's it's not changing, it's affirming. Right. And I did change parts of how I present myself, but I didn't change who I am. And I think for me, that distinction is really important, especially um, when we think about the way that a lot of anti-trans sentiments try to characterize trans people as sort of making this flippant choice to quote change gender, when in reality, that's not really resonating with a lot of trans people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to to talk about how it's not a, a choice, right, that if our folks are just out here, just, you know, one day this, one day that, but rather, yeah. as you mentioned, affirming that truth, affirming that knowing again, yeah. um, and in the process, defying what we have set as a default. And I think that's actually the change that's happening is that challenge to yeah. what we have accepted in society as there are only two genders and they must look a certain way. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, kind of going back on that word choice, though, and I think I also, this is also in the book, but the, the other question I ask people is, so what if it is a choice, right? Mm -hmm. Like, it's not. For most trans people that I know, they did not choose to be trans. I don't know actually any trans person who chose to be trans. Um, I think most of us would probably choose not to be in some situations because it's so difficult, right, in the mm -hmm. world to be trans. Um but even if it was a choice, right, why would that be so bad? And the answer is it would only be bad if you demonize transness, right? It would mm -hmm. be only bad if gender exploration was inherently problematic. And it's not. There's nothing actually wrong with getting a haircut or or changing the way that you present your clothing or, um, I don't know, wearing a different handbag one day to the next. It doesn't matter really. Even the hormones and the surgery, like people do things with their bodies, body autonomy all the time. There is mm -hmm. a lot of plastic surgery and other cosmetic surgeries that happen all the time, way more than trans people get gender affirming surgeries. And people are granted that autonomy, right? So mm -hmm. I don't think being a trans is a choice and none of the literature, the American Psychological Association, American Medical Association, like none of those pieces of expertise say that trans is a choice. It's not. But even if it was, I don't think that would be a problem. And I think we need to wrap our heads around why we think it's a problem. And it's because we have this internalized transphobia. We think that being trans is somehow wrong, right? And therefore, the choice would be bad. Mm -hmm. I love that reminder. Thank you so much for saying that. Um, again, you know, throughout the book, you give us these moments where we can really hopefully pause and consider, okay, why have I accepted maybe some of these ideas as truth? Why does this feel so as if something is being violated when in fact it is this belief system and tied to structural inequalities, tied to different biases that's being challenged, right? right. Uh, and so- Thank you so much for allowing us on this journey to really sit and think about, okay, what is it about the society that I'm living in? And maybe there are some beliefs or ideologies that are harmful that we should be letting go of so that folks can just 
live so that all of us can just live and exist in this world. Yeah. I I think that that moment where we try to pause is one of the most important moments. And it's why in the book I have um, in, in the ending chapter, I talk about how we learn to pause and how we actually take that moment and what we can do in that moment. Because I think a lot of people don't have the frameworks for what it looks like to adjust our biases, right? And I think a lot of people think that biases are inherently wrong. Oh, I'm, you know, that people are more quick to say I'm not racist before they're actually quick to do the work to be anti-racist. And what I want to remind mind people, and this is stuff I've learned also from a lot of other amazing educators that came before me, is that we actually have to accept the status quo, which is a lot of racism, which is a lot of transphobia. When I say accept, I don't mean be complicit with, I mean, accept that those are systems that affect us, right? Mm -hmm. And therefore, of course, we're going to have transphobic biases. Of course, we're going to have misogynistic biases, racist biases, fatphobic biases, and so on. And if we deny that, we're denying reality, right? We're denying the system that we're living in. And so it's not when we think about bias, when we think about taking that pause to really reconsider, it's not about beating ourselves up in that moment either, because of course we're here. It's what do we do next? And that's mm-hmm. why that chapter in the book, Allyship, is really about how we take that pause so that we're able to break it open and have a framework for taking care of ourselves and evaluating ourselves when we take that pause. Mm-hmm. I love that throughout the book, you really give us those moments to say like, okay, we are in these systems, these systems that uh, facilitate and uphold inequality based on race, based on gender, based on sexuality, and a lot of different social identities that we hold. And so of course, we, we know these beliefs, right? And Yet, even though we might say something that is transphobic, we can learn from that moment. And it doesn't mean that we're a a bad person and we can never grow from it or, or we can't do better. And I think that is also something important for folks to hear that we are exposed to these biases. We may even internalize them and we will make mistakes and say something that is transphobic, but we can also learn from it and admit that, okay, that was wrong. Let me make amends. Let me also, you know, take the moment and be gentle with myself so that yeah. I can continue to learn and grow versus being afraid of expanding our own awareness or being afraid to even stand up and say something about the biases, biases that we might see other people displaying as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the the biggest barriers towards learning something that might be new or radical to you, right? Revolutionary even. Um, One of the biggest barriers is fear because that fear puts up a wall and it says, I'm not going to learn. I'm going to stay where I'm comfortable, even if where I'm comfortable is wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And that's a huge problem in this country right now. People are putting up very strong reinforced barriers that are filled with fear, built by fear. Um, And what I try to do in all the trainings that I've given, I I noticed even eight years ago before the, the sort of rise of anti-trans laws that we've seen now, when I started doing this work, I saw people so nervous to ask me the wrong question, right? I've given about 500 trainings to date. And every time I open it up for questions at the end, people would be like, I don't know how to say this. I don't want to say the wrong thing. Like I just want, and they would, they would have this like two to three minute preamble for a very easy question because they were so afraid to say the wrong thing. And I get it. And I think that fear comes from a really good place. It comes from a compassionate place of not wanting to hurt somebody. But what I've now learned to say, and I've, like I said, done this like 500 times, after the first like three or four, I was like, you know what? We're we're getting rid of this. Like, I'm going to tell people, you can say whatever you want. And if you offend me, great. Let's walk through it together. I'm not going to be offended. Let's do this. And that's a lot of the energy I put into the book. Now, we shouldn't expect that from trans people. If you say the wrong thing, you might hurt them. And the book goes through that. But Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say is, 
we have to we have to accept the risk that we might hurt somebody. And the the important thing, the good person thing, the ally thing to do is saying, I will hurt people. And what I do next is what shows my allyship, right? Mm. Because I'm gonna make a mistake. I have made mistakes that are you know racist. I've made mistakes that are fat phobic. I've made mistakes that are classist because I live in this world too. And it's way better for me to say, oh crap. <laughs> I, I messed up there. Let me make it better or let me learn something or let me, you know, ask a friend what else I could do differently, do some research. It's not productive for me to stick my heels in and be like, no, I didn't mean it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that's where I really want to call people in to this moment again, to be gentle with yourself, because in moments when I've made mistakes, I'm, I'm inclined just, I think like a lot of people are to be mean to myself, right? You're so terrible. Why did you do that? How dare you? Like what, you know, getting angry with myself. Um, and, and that's not, doesn't help anybody, right? It doesn't move us forward. Um, so I think it's, it's how we care for ourselves when we make mistakes and how we then care for others, because mm-hmm. it will translate from the care for myself to another person. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the book, I think it's so valuable that you give us a lot of kind of vignettes or scenarios or sample conversations in order for folks to get used to, you know, making the mistake, but more importantly, reflecting and saying, okay, what do I need to do differently? Also, how do I acknowledge that I made a mistake um, with that person and apologize and think about how can I move forward with them if they will allow me, you know, allow me to. And so I thought that was really powerful because I know folks have a fear of not wanting to the wrong thing, not wanting to hurt somebody, not wanting to be seen as a bad person, right? Um, And so there's a lot at stake or we build it up for there to be a lot at stake. And so I really appreciated you giving practical examples of conversations to have, also how to show up as an ally in our workplaces and our families, friend settings, other professional settings as well. And so that was really valuable. And I love the reminders even that you just gave right now that yes, folks can ask you if they're in a training with you, they can ask you all the questions that they want to because that is the setting and that is the condition of y'all's exchange. Um, And I've consented to doing so. Usually I'm paid to do so, right? It's my job (laughs) to do so. Yes, but that we should not just be walking up on people, on any people, (laughs) period, and just asking them any curious question that we have, right? Um, Something you say throughout the book is it's perfectly fine to be curious, but it's not okay to demand people answer our questions. Um, And so I think for folks who are like, but I have a lot of questions, I understand it. Get the book because you walk (laughs) through so many different questions that I know folks have around you talk about dating, around, you know, different sports debates, of course, the bathroom debates that we always hear about. Um, And so all those curious questions are addressed in the book. And so that's, I think it's a good starting place maybe, or even a continuing place for folks if they have questions and so that you don't have to, um, you know, walk up on a stranger and start (laughs) asking them really inappropriate questions, right? That they they should not have to be asked or answered. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I always like to give people the, I like to put it into um, like a cisgender context, right? Because I think when people, you know, meet a trans person, suddenly a lot of their common sense can go out the window because it's something that's new and they're, so their curiosity wins, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, for example, a lot of trans people are asked about our surgeries um, or, or, you know, about our transitions. And it's usually some form of like, well, how, are you going to do the full transition or are you going to get the surgery or, you know, um, you know, what, what surgeries are you going to do? Right. They ask all these questions. And I think 
unless at least in my experience, when I first came out, I thought, okay, well, maybe they're asking me these questions because when I say I'm trans, that's like the only thing that they can think of that's relevant. And so that's why they want to ask about that. But what people need to understand is that when they ask me about my surgeries or um, if I'm going to get the surgery or even what am I going to do in my transition, they're effectively asking me for my personal medical information. And sometimes they're directly asking me what my genitals look like and what mm. they're going to look like, right? And most people, when I say that, recognize almost immediately, we don't do that. We don't ask random people on the street what their genitals look like. And if we do, it's pretty creepy, right? And it's pretty <laughs> frowned upon. Um, we also don't ask people for their personal medical histories really ever, right? Unless we're volunteered or invited in to that conversation. So I think if you can sort of understand the context of whatever question you want to ask and put it into a context of like, would you ask another person who's not trans that? And if the answer is no, maybe don't ask the trans person, right? Right? Um, mm -hmm. Or maybe make it clear that that you know you don't you don't need an answer, but you want to ask the question. But even then, you know, it can be dangerous to be curious about things you shouldn't be. <laughs> right. Absolutely. I mean, I, I love that example too, in you know making it plain for cis folks because absolutely we would just not ask anyone and not even probably people really close to us. So yeah. what's going on with your genitals? Who are you having sex with? Right. How does that work? Right. We positions. Would, <laughs> right? Like we would not ask people that. I mean, I yeah. hope we would. Uh, but, you know, so I think that's a good reminder. Uh, you know, something that really struck me in the book is you mentioned um, grief like mm. grieving of um, maybe a life imagined or the life that other folks imagine for you or yeah. or you even talk about uh, grieving loss of community, um, yeah. you know, with women, with queer women, um, um, even grieving in certain instances, uh, a womanhood that you are yeah. assumed to have or assumed to have wanted. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was so important um, for me to read anyway, I'll just speak for myself because sure. I think so often um, conversations about trans folks is really um, well anti-trans or transphobic, uh, but also separating people from their humanity. Yeah. And to read what you had written in the book around the grieving process, I think just really helped me understand even more um, part, I guess, part of the experience that some trans folks had. Um, so I just wanted to say, I really appreciated you, you know, sharing that and writing that in the book. Well, thank you so much. I think that was definitely uh, something that was new for me to share. Um, and I was very excited to share it as well, because I think it's a nuance that didn't fit elsewhere, right? It doesn't fit in a couple minute interview and in a TV show. It doesn't fit in an Instagram post. It just, I couldn't really, I don't think I really felt that I could express it except for in a book. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, a lot of it is complex because I think when people hear the word grief, they think of sadness, they think of crying, they think of like bad, right? And mm -hmm. I don't see grief that way, especially not in the ways that I, I wrote about it. I mm -hmm. think grief is painful, yes, but I also think it was, you know, evidence of something beautiful in my life. And a lot of, I think, conceptions about trans people require the trans person to hate who they were before they transitioned, mm -hmm. right? This like, I can't see pictures, I can't do, you know, ever, you know, confront that that version of myself. Um, and I and there are trans people that have those experiences and that's 100% valid. 
But that wasn't my experience. I didn't have this like hatred for who I'd been. In fact, I had a reverence for all of the different parts of me that that I've walked through the world, you know, showing because I am all of those, right? I'm a compilation mm-hmm. of all the people that I've ever walked the world as. And I think my manhood is augmented, is improved by the womanhood I once I once had, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't feel like it's gone from me. I don't think other people can see it, but it's something I hold really close to me, that history, that origin of womanhood, um, especially, you know, coming from a, a, a very, um, I would say, empowered and powerful line of Korean women. Um, my mm-hmm. grandmother is North Korean, escaped from North Korea right before the, or Northern Korea, actually at the time, um, you know, right before the war, I think there's just, there's so much powerful womanhood in my history. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel that my, my, you know, history of womanhood is a tribute to that. Um, and so there, there has been grief in losing the way that other people see me as comrade or as enemy. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, for good reason, women and femmes look for other women and femmes to feel safe around because mm-hmm. patriarchal violence is ubiquitous. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I now look like patriarchal violence, right. I, align in that category because I look like a man and people mm-hmm. perceive me as a man um, and they don't see my womanhood. And so I've lost that automatic camaraderie with women and femmes um, that I still feel internally, mm-hmm. right? I still feel that connection because I, I, that was my origin story. Um, and I, I can understand a lot of what many women go through in this world because of that history, but they don't know that I have. And so yeah. there's been grief of, of that that um that that separation that that sort of distance that's there um and i think the ones that love and trust me the most right i or that are feel i feel closest women closest to women i know know that that's their that history right they they understand that but that's not the same walking down the street um and so i have to be really mindful of what that means when i walk around the world with male privilege and the implications of the patriarchy mhm Yeah, I mean, in the book, you say, um, before I transitioned, I was the object of misogyny. Now I'm expected to be an accomplice to it. And that just, I mean, just thinking about that, I was like, wow, like that's so, you know, like, again, thinking about that big shift, again, not a shift for you internally, but a shift externally, how people are perceiving you and how, again, we are socialized into gender and into beliefs about what it means to be a woman or man and how you should be treated or, you know, um, different biases, again, that we learn. And so to have you write that into the book, I also think it just gave me another opportunity to think about how I'm socialized into gender, the different beliefs or biases that I hold and how, as you mentioned, it's inescapable because that is the society that we live in. Right, right. Yeah, I think that was probably one of the biggest um, points of grief there. I think I went through stages of grief that included anger and denial and upset. Um, because I, because I was, I, I didn't know how to accept that I could be perceived in accompliceship with the patriarchy. I was like, I didn't come from here. I'm not a cisgender man. I'm not, you know, this like straight, cisgender man i'm 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 like this queer person with this very queer history like i walked the world as woman for 18 19 years like how could i be in this other category and and i think the the world actually caught up with me more quickly than i did with myself because as soon as i looked quote unquote enough like a man 
that was that, right? The world saw me differently. And I I didn't adjust quick like that quickly. So there was this period of lag where I was like, why is the world seeing me differently? Right. Why are women like more likely to cross like cross the street? Like I remember walking uh behind, like I was walking down the street and it was late at night and there was a woman in front of me and she kept on turning to look back at me. And mm -hmm. I kept on turning back behind me because I thought she was looking behind. Yeah, you know, I was like, what's going on? Like what what's here? Right. Right. I'm looking behind me. And then there was nobody behind me. And then I figure out she was looking at me and I'm a speedy right. walker. So I was like, I think gaining on her. And it, it didn't occur to me that I could make her afraid, but I realized she was afraid of me. And I was like, oh my God, this is like, this is such a different world that I'm walking now. I, and I slowed down and I crossed the street because I was like, I don't want to scare it like that. I'm just trying to get home. Right. Right. Um, but it was a very shocking experience for me to consider that just the way I look, right. And the way the world is going to now gender me will deeply shift many of my uh, interactions with other people based on that um, perce perception. Mm -hmm. And I love that you shared um, that story because I think it also gives us an opportunity to really think through the ways that we move through this world and those ways are taken for granted, whether whether you're the woman or the man in that story, right? And you're yeah. thinking about safety or not thinking about safety in yeah. ways that, you know, we've learned throughout our lives, um, whether again, that we are, it's okay for us to walk alone at night or that it's not okay, Right. Yeah, exactly. um, and so, again, just throughout the book, moments for us to really just take a pause and question, you know, how we've been socialized into our own gender um, and what that might mean as we're, you know, in the world with other folks as well. Um, the other point that I really enjoyed reading in your book is about your family and how supportive your family has been. Um, and that really gave me hope to hear you have a family who is very supportive, even I think also culturally, racially, you know, all of these different ways where we might expect that there may have been major challenges. Um, and so that really made me happy that your family yeah. has been so supportive. Um, but I'm also wondering, how do you resolve or make sense of or, or gentle with yourself? I'm not even sure what the, the right word is, um, when maybe loved ones are resistant um, to who you are and are invalidating of who you are. Yeah. I think it's one of the most devastating experiences for a lot of, of queer and trans folks is, is that rejection from family um, about our identities. And it's not specific to queer and trans folks, by the way, I think any rejection from parents is often the most difficult rejection we yeah. experience. Right. Um, but it's just, it's very common for trans and queer folks to experience some like there's a, a an extraordinarily high proportion of homeless youth that are that are mm -hmm. that are trans and queer, and a lot of that is because of conflict with family, right? Um, and I think it's really striking when we think about that that parents are willing to kick their kids out of their house for their identities. Um, and in my opinion, if a parent's going to do that. That, should, that person should not be a parent because you should you should love your kid no matter what. And can you have difficulty with their identity? Sure, right? Because maybe this is something you don't understand. You're not versed in. You don't have the resources to understand. That's fine. But kicking them out, right, and it's essentially contributing to their harm, I think, is really really um, devastating. Um, what I always like to share, you know, a couple a couple different angles. The first is that for the the parent or for other people who are trying to support trans youth or trans people, it's important to recognize that you don't have to understand everything in order to be supportive. And I think people have a really strong uh, commitment to a fallacy, which is that if I don't understand it, it's not real, right? Mm -hmm. And they do this all the time with trans people. Well, I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. Therefore, it can't be. And 
there's a lot of things in the world that we don't get, right? Yeah. A lot. And I could name, like, I'm just looking around my office. There's so many things in this office. I have no idea how they work, right? The computer being a main one. Right? I have no <laughs> idea how the computer works. No idea how the microphone works, but it does, right? And mm -hmm. I trust that it works, that I use it multiple times a day, every day. But just because I, Skylar Baylor, don't understand how this microphone works doesn't mean that it's not, right? That it doesn't work. Um, and I think we need to understand that, right? It works. I don't get it. That's fine. And we can trust the same thing about trans people and identity, which is that if you don't get it, that's okay. So I think that's a huge one because if we can let go of needing to understand, we can make a lot more space for love, for compassion. And then understanding usually comes later if we open ourselves, right, to the to mm -hmm. those loves and love and compassion. Um, the other thing is for the kids, right? For the for the for maybe the adult kids, um, the trans folks who are experiencing that, I think it's really important to find uh, chosen chosen community, chosen family making sure that you find a place where you do belong in the world, or at least people welcome you into belonging. Because just because your parents don't make that space or family doesn't make that space does not mean that you don't belong in this world. You do. And you have to find the places that that make you feel that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was so moved um, throughout the book on how you really committed to walking alongside your family, right? And how they were really committed to walking alongside yeah. you. Um, and that really just gave me so much hope in people, uh, particularly talk about your father and having a difficult conversation and yeah. a screaming match with him um, <laughs> one day. And and you say, you know, I I need him to understand, right? I be, And I know that he can Right. Yeah. Like I love him. I want him in my life. I know that he can he can change. Right. And I thought that was so beautiful. Um, that belief that yes, we can change and that, you know, we don't have to understand everything about everything and everyone, uh, but we can still show up for people. And that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the things my parents um have always instilled in me is is the presence that they're not going to ever go away, right? I, I think they're, they're very clearly committed to being present as parents, being loving as parents. And I have a, a huge privilege I have had is that I've never felt that they would revoke their love or their support for me as a human. Have we had really difficult conversations about my identity and my experiences? Sure, right? You mentioned a screaming match. I detail um, at length a screaming match me and my dad had, and there's a couple actually in there, about <laughs> a couple of things. Um, and, and you know, I don't, I'm not proud of the screaming part, but, but I am proud of our commitment to having those conversations. And sometimes it did take yelling. Sometimes it was really painful to have these conversations. And, um, I think that the reason I was able to though, was because I knew that they would, they would muddle through them with me, you know, sometimes to a fault, like we both <laughs> needed to take a break. <laughs> um, but especially I think those conversations have shown me that I can trust that they will eventually understand. Um, and they've taught me how to give people space to understand. I mean, I think, well, the other thing that we, that I, I really try to highlight in the book and that maybe, you know, other trans folks can also um, take something away from is that we can't actually expect everybody to get it all the time. We can't expect people to um, shift as quickly as we might want them to. Is it reasonable that we want them to shift? Yes. And that's like, absolutely valid, right? I can want somebody to not be a transphobe. Yeah. <laughs> but can I expect them not to be? Not really, right? I can't expect a whole lot. And when I make space for that, 
that, I actually make space also for my own healing in that process, right? So it is a commitment to both the other person, but also to yourself to say, I don't really know what you're going to do with this information. I don't know how you're going to respond, but I know that sharing it's right for me. And I know that from here, we're going to move forwards and I'm going to take care of myself. And you're either going to come along for the journey or you're not, right? Um, and I think there's a lot of groundedness that we can find um, even in those really difficult moments. Yeah, I think that commitment to being who you are and allowing people in is so important. Um, you talk about that in the book, like making sure that you are committed to you and showing up for you because that is the relationship, right, that we will have forever is that relationship with ourselves and right. hopefully, you know, extending um, that relationship with others to let them into who we are. It can be a risk, but it is important and imperative to our survival to be who we are. And yeah. hopefully we have those supportive relationships that will come alongside us. Or um, if not, we will be able to create and find the ones that will. And so I, I love that reminder. Um, Skylar, I can't believe that our time is already coming to an end. I thank you so much for writing this book. It is something that I know that I will continue you to return to. Um, and I hope that other folks will uh, pick it up and encounter it for the first time and continue to return to it as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Suna. I really appreciate your, your commitment to this work and your commitment to being open as well. I think that's really commendable. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much to Skylar Baylor. He is the author of He, She, They, How We Talk About Gender and Why It Matters. This book, Oh my goodness, I think it's such an important resource for all of us to have. I know for many folks, maybe this whole idea of using pronouns or what does it mean to be transgender is something very new. It's confusing. And this book will help you work through all of the questions you have, all the questions you want to ask, but you don't know where to ask. And I think this will also help all of us really take a moment to investigate ourselves and how we show up in the world, but also the type of world that we want to live in. This has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I am here every week having curious conversations with experts from across the country. And I hope that you will join me again here next week. Make sure you're subscribed to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format and also on YouTube. That way you can return to the conversations. If you miss a conversation, you can catch up. And also you could share Let's Grab Coffee with a friends. Well, this is your reminder each and every day you get to decide. Yes, you get to decide how you will show up in this world and what type of day you're going to have. Over time, it is those daily choices that create your life. So what type of life are you creating? <laughs>